Hello and welcome to the Risk Map Podcast from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and across five episodes, I'll be speaking with our regional experts to find out how the top five risks we've identified for 2020 have been evolving and will continue to evolve in different regional contexts as the world navigates its way through the disruption, unrest, and economic shocks caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be looking at Africa. So let's meet our experts. Bukula Balarinwa, we all call her Buki, is our London-based analyst for West Africa, and she's dialing in today from home. Hi, Buki. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. Thanks for joining us. Marissa Lorenzo is an associate analyst for Southern Africa, normally based in our Johannesburg office, and she's also dialing in from home. Welcome. It's great to have you. Great. Thank you for having me. Also joining us from her home in Nairobi is Patricia Rodriguez, our analyst for Eastern Africa. Patricia, welcome to the Risk Map podcast, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Chuck. Happy to be here. Joining us from his home in Lagos is Tim Cox. Tim is a partner in the firm and the head of our operations in West Africa. Tim, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Welcome. So what we're going to try to do over the course of this conversation is just talk about the top five risks in Africa and how you feel they're impacting and, and sort of coming to life, particularly for business in your regions. Buki, do you mind if we just jump in with you and West Africa? We talk a lot about leadership or the lack thereof, leadership and stability perhaps across the world. In West Africa, what's the picture in political leadership? Has there been any kind of coordination, any sort of strategic work in your region, or is it just leaders doing what they can in their patches and forget about the bigger picture? I think for the COVID-19 crisis, we've actually seen leaders in West Africa be proactive even before the very first case came in. There were already checks at airports and leaders in West Africa particularly recognize that the healthcare systems are weak. The economy is quite vulnerable to shocks and they've been dealing with other epidemics such as Ebola, which haven't even gone away in certain countries. They came into the pandemic already prepared for the worst, which I think has helped them to be a bit more proactive. In terms of the country, certain leaders have been a little bit more exemplary than others. So if you take Ghana, for example, President Nana Kufuadu was one of the first to put in place lockdown measures, airport screenings and things like that in the region. But at the same time, he was the first to lift the lockdown restrictions on the continent um, in recognition of the fact that it is too difficult for people in Ghana, most of whom are daily wage earners or work in careers where they earn money on a daily basis to be locked down, right? People need to actually go out and make a living. The kind of opportunities in, in Europe, in Europe or Asia for people to get, you know, some sort of government subsidies or to be put on furlough schemes don't exist in a lot of West Africans. So they were quick to take away the lockdown and, and allow people to go about fending for their day. So they've had to be more creative in the way that they've dealt with the COVID-19 crisis. Buki, have you seen any sort of correlation between leadership and, and the economic impact? I mean, you talked about the job situation and the way people earn money uh, on a daily basis. Tell us a little bit about the economic picture in the region. 
So the economic picture is quite bleak for countries like Nigeria, who are commodities based. The major challenge of the pandemic has actually been an economic and fiscal one. The oil price crash is really dire for Nigeria because significant portion of its revenues comes from crude oil exports. Now, even though the oil prices have, have slowly started to recover from the initial dip, a lot of the projects and government's planning is built around revenues that come from oil. And so as the prices of these commodities do not recover quite quickly, the government is really in a bad fiscal situation. So what they've had to do is kind of ramp up borrowing. And the Nigeria decided to get some money from the IMF, even though it's been against going into any form of IMF program. But that too just tells you how bad the picture is. One thing that the African leaders have done is come together to talk about debt relief. Countries in ECOWAS, as well as in general in African Union, recognize that the challenges for the economy are going to be too difficult for them. And for a lot of them, their debt to GDP ratios were already bordering on um, sovereign debt crisis. And so they've all come together to speak in one voice to ask for some sort of debt delays or debt reliefs in the coming months. It's interesting to see that actually it's the economy that brings leaders together when there are lots of other issues that that national leaders might want to coalesce around. That's a fascinating sort of magnetic pull from the economic side. Marissa, if we can switch to you for a second, what's your view on, on the quality of political leadership in the face of the pandemic and also as we pull out of the pandemic? Very similar to West Africa, leaders across the, the Southern African region were extremely proactive in dealing with the pandemic and its very, very early stages. So what most of them did was they closed their borders to commercial travel, they implemented some type of, re of restrictions, they put in place social distancing guidelines. And this was really, in some countries, has really helped to so far, avoid local transmission. So some countries like Namibia, Botswana, Angola, they've really managed to keep a handle on the number of cases and they're not climbing that rapidly. And this is important because if you're going to implement a lockdown very, very early on in the pandemic, this means that as the pandemic lingers and cases continue to rise, the region as a whole has yet to reach its peak. This means that these restrictions have to be in place for a considerable number of months. And this puts a lot of pressure on livelihoods. Again, similar to West Africa, you do have a lot of people reliant on informal labor. So in the beginning, it was very, very good to be proactive. And we didn't necessarily see leaders coming together. Decisions were mostly taken by leaders within their respective countries, but they all had the same purpose of stopping movement across the region to limit the number of cases. Marissa, in the face of all of these really severe lockdowns, and I'm actually going to come back to Buki with the same question in just a moment, what about cross-border economic activity in the region? If the domestic lockdowns were pretty severe in Southern Africa, and, and South Africa itself had one of the world's tightest lockdown periods, how has cross-border activity worked under conditions like that? So none of the governments actually stopped cargo coming from across the border, with the exception of Zambia. At some point for a few days, they closed the border with Tanzania because they were very, very concerned about the president Magafuli's very lax response to the pandemic. They felt that he had not been taking enough measures to stop the spread in the country. 
And what they wanted to do was to make sure that none of the cases were coming across there. This is, of course, a more extreme example. Generally, all of the borders have been close to commercial travel, but not close to freight. Even with this, though, they've had to introduce very strict screening measures between borders, and this has caused some significant delays. Where we've seen the most delays have come between South Africa and Mozambique, but we've also seen it across the region. And this is just because companies now have to get out testing kits for cargo drivers. There's a much longer waiting time at the border. They also have to be careful because most recently, some truck drivers have actually been coming back into the country with cases of COVID. Uh, Most of these have been originating in South Africa, given that it's got the highest number of cases within the region. This has led to increased quarantine times. It's led to uh, drivers not then being able to leave the country once they've been inside. And so this has actually slowed down supply chains. So even though governments have tried to keep the flow of freight coming into the region, they are struggling with this because they are trying to contain it by having these very strict health screening measures. We've also seen that Namibia has closed down the port city of Volfus Bay. So that's remained on lockdown even even while the rest of the country has relaxed restrictions. And the reason for this is that that's one of the main ports of entry for the country. And they're very worried that when goods come in and cargo comes in and people come in from there, again, even though it's only related to essential business and freight, they're very worried that these people might take the virus to other parts of the country. Buki, just quickly over to you in West Africa. Have you seen similar a similar phenomenon on countries that are dependent upon trade amongst themselves and between themselves for economic activity? Trade between West African countries has actually been traditionally very low. And so a lot of trade happens more internationally than across the border, which is part of what the African Free Trade Agreement was trying to solve. Even before the pandemic, Nigeria had already closed its borders to its neighbor, Benin Republic, to prevent goods from coming in because there's been a lot of smuggling and the government has been trying to focus on food self-sufficiency. Same thing with petroleum products. Petroleum products are subsidized in Nigeria and there's a lot of illegal smuggling from Nigeria into Benin and into other West African countries. So even before the pandemic, the cross-border trade was already really low and, and severely hindered. With the pandemic, it's even worse now for people trying to move their goods between West African borders. You have goods being stuck there for weeks on end. Even though technically the borders are supposed to be open to cargo and essential goods and services such as food and medical supplies, you'll still find that there's severe operational constraints. Same thing with flights. So flights are moving across the region for cargo and essential goods. But again, there's lots of challenges and constraints. For businesses trying to move things around the region, you'll still find that it's going to be significantly more challenging in the coming months. Very quickly, back to Marissa for a quick economic question. You know, the, the size and the importance of the South African economy to the region and the rest of the continent, and indeed South Africa's connections with, with the rest of the world, are, are critical. Give us a quick view of what you think is going to happen economically in the rest of the year. The economy contracted quite badly in 2009, and ever since then, it's recorded very, very low growth. There's been very low output from the construction, mining, manufacturing sectors. As mentioned, it has had one of the tightest lockdowns to be introduced globally. This has had a very, very big impact on the hospitality sector, the retail sector. We've seen restaurants closed, most shops closed for a period of about five weeks, and that caused enormous economic damage that it will take a while to recover from. And then this, together, when you consider the lowered output from heavy industries, will have quite a big impact. South Africa did do something, well, it did two things that were unprecedented. The first, it introduced its larger ever stimulus package worth around 26 billion US dollars. It was intended to help strengthen the healthcare response, provide a safety net for vulnerable people, provide some relief for small businesses. 
The problem with doing this is that in order to actually raise the money that it needs, it does have to return to the debt market to borrow some money. South Africa's debt burden in the same decade that it's recorded sluggish growth, its debt burden has also doubled. The country had intended before the outbreak of the pandemic to commit to fiscal consolidation, and it hasn't been able to do that, of course. Similar to Nigeria, it has had a, a historical distrust of the IMF, but it has chosen to accept a 4.2 billion US dollar loan. After 2020, the economy is expected to record minimal growth again. Essentially, what it will mean is that because growth was so stagnant in the first half of this year, because of the strict lockdown and because of the global and domestic shocks of the pandemic, it will help us to record limited growth, but it won't really be reflective of a brightening picture or brightening outlook for the country. Patricia, let's talk about leadership in East Africa. Talk about individual leaders in your region, and then tell us what your view is on whether you think there's any kind of regional coordination in light of the pandemic. There's a lot of variation in the way different countries have approached COVID-19. We've got more extreme kind of lockdowns that we saw in Uganda and Rwanda, straight through to virtually no restrictions in Tanzania, where the president instead encouraged people to pray away the virus and has since declared the country COVID-free. So there's been quite a bit of variation um, between the different countries. If I could highlight two countries in particular, the first being Uganda, which has much fewer cases than I suppose its regional counterparts, owing to a lot of experience it's developed in combating public health crises such as the Ebola outbreak. And then the second one I would highlight is Ethiopia, where we've seen the, the government deploy a huge amount of uh, community health workers to do preliminary screenings, to do public awareness campaigns. And so that has helped in a lot of ways limit the spread of the virus uh, in more rural areas. So those two kind of stand out for me, I suppose, as success stories. But as I mentioned, yeah, there's been quite a bit of variation. And to your other point, very little coordination between all these different countries. Patricia, can you sort of pair the economic story with the political story in cases where countries have been quite effective at controlling the virus? Um, have you seen them manage the economic impact of the pandemic with equal skill? Well, I, I suppose the short answer is no. With many other African countries, as I'm sure my colleagues um, can attest to, um, the problem of the virus has been less about health and more about socioeconomics. Yes, you can impose some very restrictive measures and movement, but the fact of the matter is you're asking a lot of urban residents to choose between getting sick from the virus or choosing to actually go out to work to earn incomes. So that decision has been very difficult from the government's perspectives to make. And that's why you can see a lot of the lockdowns and more restrictive measures are already easing, despite countries not having reached the peak of their pandemic curves at the moment. In short, the economic impact has been very negative, especially hard for urban residents um, who really and truly depend on daily labor. Government responses have also varied when it comes to supporting or mitigating against these socioeconomic impacts. Uh, we've seen perhaps on the more positive side, maybe the start of the development of social safety net programs 
which weren't typically prioritized in this part of Africa. So that might be a positive outcome at the end of this crisis is that we start to see the development of better welfare systems for some of the more vulnerable populations in this part of Africa. Patricia, Marissa just told us in her remarks that the amount of interconnectivity um, economically among Southern African countries has really created a lot of problems for logistics and supply chain and and cross-border transactions on cargo. Health checks at borders in her region are creating fairly significant backlogs and tailbacks at the borders. How interdependent is the East African region economically and what sort of impact are you seeing there on a practical level? When it comes to economic interdependence, East Africa ranks among the highest across the whole continent for that kind of trade interdependence. So when it comes to health checks and screenings, frankly, traffic jams at the borders are kilometers long and have not been cleared. So the region depends on essentially three ports, one at Mombasa in Kenya, one in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and then the other one is in Djibouti for the Horn of Africa. Those three ports have experienced some severe backlogs with social distancing measures, with uh, health checks and screenings. We had a scare here in Kenya because more than a dozen port workers were tested positive for the disease. More broadly, Tanzania's kind of lax response to COVID has been a huge concern for all its neighbours. So the country isn't really reporting case numbers anymore. Its neighbours have put in mandatory COVID-19 tests for Tanzanian truck drivers to enter Kenya, to enter Zambia, to enter Rwanda. And what that is translating to is hundreds of Tanzanian truck drivers being denied entry into all of these countries. So obviously the supply chain disruption is quite severe on the Tanzanian side and the different governments are still negotiating on how to best resolve this issue. Like the rest of the world, Africa is looking to the United States and waiting perhaps for November to come and go when the United States will either elect or re-elect a president. We've had President Trump threaten to defund and withdraw support from the World Health Organization. Buki, can I start with you? In West Africa, a World Health Organization without the United States, both financially and in terms of its its own capacity and, and its reach and, and its authority globally, is there any anticipation that a change in administration in Washington might bring the World Health Organization back to full strength. Some of the most severe health challenges and health capacity constraints around the world are in Africa. And the question is, how much of a step backwards are we going to take if the WHO has to decrease some of its programs within Africa? This is something that will be key for a lot of African leaders. And unfortunately, as the pandemic has hit, a lot of the budgetary cuts are coming into the healthcare and education sectors, sectors that are already significantly defunded anyway. We've seen a lot of African countries prioritize things like infrastructure and some of those big projects like airports and roads and Increasingly as well, trying to focus on agriculture, but health and education in particular have been lacking in terms of funding. And so the continent really cannot afford any more cuts to these kinds of essential social services. Patricia, from your perspective in East Africa, tell us what you're thinking about when you think about the November presidential elections in in the U.S., 
since Trump came to power, a lot of African affairs and African matters in general have been really deprioritized by the U.S. administration. There's a few posts of ambassadors which haven't been filled in several years. And the, the head of the African affairs section in the State Department was, I think, confirmed maybe two years into Trump's administration. So you can see from the U.S. side, Africa's really kind of fallen low on its list of priorities. So in regards to the, the November election, I suppose it could go a number of ways. If Trump wins, then we see this continued deprioritization of African affairs and really and truly a shift away from some aid relationships to more formal trade relationships. As we saw with the merger of OPEC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and the creation of this Development Finance Corporation, which is supposed to rival some of the other Western donors' equity and debt investments in Africa. So there could be that shift towards more commercial relationships with the African continent. So the second part of that is what happens if Biden perhaps wins instead. Perhaps then we do see a return to the more cordial relationships that we saw um, under President Obama and perhaps, you know, continued focus on both development and commercial relationships. Among the many aspects of the pandemic and its lockdowns around the world, it, it, it feels like there's been some sort of lid on a pressure cooker and that as lockdown relaxes, and, and even though that's going to happen differently and at different paces in different countries, um, I get the feeling that, that once the lid comes off, there'll be quite, quite a reaction from an aggrieved public that's feeling economically depressed, that's unhealthy, and that, that wants its livelihoods back and, and wants to go back to life and business as usual. Paint a picture for us, if you can, a little bit. Let's start with, with Buki in West Africa. What are you anticipating in civil unrest and activism? And, and what might be the security implications for business under the scenario that you're going to paint for us? For Africa, business as usual was never great to begin with. So that eagerness to go back to business as usual isn't really there. Business as usual was already really low growth, really high unemployment and really poor quality jobs. I think that for, for countries like Nigeria, for example, what we're seeing is rising insecurity in different parts of the country. There's a number of significant security challenges already, which includes terrorism in the northeast and farmer herder clashes in the north central, as well as high crime rates in the southwest and south south. In the northwest region, we're now seeing increasing rates of crime, stealing of cattle and things like that, lots more bandit groups. And a lot of this is just coming from the severe socioeconomic challenges across the country, despite the growth of the economy in general in terms of GDP from commodity prices over the last 10 years. Actually, most Nigerians have gotten poorer in the last 10 years. And so the challenges were already significantly stark before then. Unlike other regions where it's going to be more protests and unrest, a lot of the challenges with the economy and, and social economic breakdown usually just leads to more severe security challenges. Even in Ghana, which has a very benign crime level, we've already seen certain spikes. So it's not so much a kind of movement in the streets protesting. It's more about severe security challenges. Marissa, how would you contrast the situation in Southern Africa to what Buki's telling us about West Africa? 
similar to West Africa, we're not going to see so much activism, but we are going to see issues like civil unrest and issues like crime be exacerbated. When the lockdowns were first implemented, if I turn to South Africa as an example, there was a general decrease in crime because the country does have a high crime rate and movement will slow down and there was increased policing and the South African National Defense Force was out. But what happened during the first five weeks of the very, very strict lockdown was that we saw sporadic cases of looting of retail stores. And we also saw some protests against the lockdown. And really what this was reflective of was the interruption to the economic livelihoods of many, many people. And also because of the slow delivery of food parcels that had been promised by the government. Since the economy has opened up more first at the beginning of May and then more since the beginning of June, these types of incidents have reduced and they've remained relatively quiet. But going forward, because the economic fallout from the pandemic will be quite severe in South Africa, we do expect to see crimes like armed robberies, carjackings, break-ins, things like that, to become a little bit more common. And this is just really because of the socioeconomic pressures growing. We also expect to see things like civil unrest growing. There could be about 1 million jobs lost in the wake of the pandemic. South Africa already has a very high unemployment rate of 28% in a population of 56 million people. And there's quite a strong trade union side. And these start to lead to more protests, more civil unrest. And for now, it could be against the ongoing restrictions, especially because the government hasn't really given, given an indication of how the government is going to start to loosen them over the coming months and for the rest of the year. Instead, it's just focused on, you know, the growing number of cases and the, and the healthcare sector capacity, but the sort of not knowing where the restrictions are going. And then after that, even once the economy opens more and more and we start to see a kind of return to normal life, there'll be so many jobs lost. There'll be less opportunities. As I mentioned before, even when the economy does record some growth next year, it's not reflective of anything meaningful or substantial. And all of this has the potential to create increased security threats. Patricia, what will activism and unrest on the ground in East Africa look like? So there's two dimensions, I would say, to activism here. There is one side which is, you know, truly been dampened by the COVID-19 restrictions. So um, I would say the quote-unquote more traditional uh, unrest when it comes to, you know, political issues or civil society organized protests, those have really been dampened by restrictions and movements. But we've also seen state security forces and police in particular really heavy-handedly enforce COVID-19 measures. And that's creating a, a, a sort of backlash amongst a lot of communities. We're starting to actually see some protests um, against, you know, these heavy-handed measures. And that has actually been witnessed throughout the pandemic. So from the moment that restrictions were put in place, we already started to see, you know, groups coming out and mobilizing against government restrictions because of the way they were being enforced. So we're starting to see a lot more focus being placed on security forces and potentially that could spur some, some reforms in the way state security forces are empowered to handle you know, states of emergency or even to enforce, I suppose, public health and other types of restrictions going forward. Tim, thanks very much for standing by so patiently. We want to turn to you now for your specific insights on the cyber question. I think everybody understands that the threat has evolved with the advent of the pandemic, and companies have had to change their defenses uh, when it comes to protection from the cyber threat. Tell us a little bit about your perspective from West Africa, what you're hearing about the cyber threat there, and also what our clients are talking about 
when you engage with them on, on the topic of cyber? Yes, indeed. Well, I think there's a number of considerations here in relation to cybersecurity. The, the first and most obvious is that many people are now working in unfamiliar surroundings and without the protection of their company's cybersecurity framework. And so firstly, that means that there are technical vulnerabilities and working remotely that didn't exist before. But over and above that, it means that some of the processes that were in place, particularly in relation to financial transactions or approvals, are now being run remotely and in unfamiliar circumstances. And so a lot of that face-to-face interaction that previously could be used for validation or verification isn't taking place. And companies have had to quite quickly adapt to that new reality. The other consideration, of course, is that during any period of, of economic turbulence, we see an uptick in fraudulent activity at large. And cybersecurity isn't immune from that. So where we see increased individual actions, we also see coordinated actions by organized criminal groups looking to exploit these new vulnerabilities and to capitalize upon people's unfamiliarity and insecurity during this period. It's interesting to see, Tim, the themes really are consistent. And and while I'm aware that there are always geographical variations to the cyber threat and to what companies have to do, there is something a little bit reassuring for companies in knowing that there are strands and themes to cyber risk and cybersecurity that will follow them wherever they go. Yeah, I guess it, reassuring is the way to put it. But certainly there are themes that, that align. And I think something that, that we have always focused on is that convergence of physical security risks and cybersecurity risks. You go back many years now, um, cyber was thought of as being a, a techie IT problem. It is now increasingly recognized that it is an integral part of a risk management portfolio and that it sits alongside many of those security risk issues that our clients are very used to facing in these environments. And quite often, the greatest vulnerability is, is the action of individual employees who unwittingly or unknowingly can lead uh, cyber criminals or threat actors into a vulnerability and allow access to their systems. And that is exactly the same in the physical security world, where quite often we see individual oversight or individual failings, and in some cases, complicity with threat actors leading to the exploitation of a vulnerability. We're just about out of time. Bukula Balarinwa, I just want to say thank you to you for joining us um, and for dialing in from home. As always, it's a pleasure to learn from you. Um, Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. And from Marissa dialing in from one of the world's tightest lockdowns. Um, I wish you a a very swift relaxation of restrictions and I'm very, very grateful for your time. Great. Thank you so much for having me here. Tim, it's great to have you dialing in from Lagos. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Many thanks. Finally, I want to thank Patricia Rodriguez joining us from Nairobi. It's been great having a chat with you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Risk Map Podcast. All five episodes in this series are available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can explore our entire risk map forecast at controlrisks.com. Be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as the Global Insight, featuring clear business insight from a panel of our experts on a range of topics every other Monday, or the Supply Chain, a limited series looking at the impact of COVID-19 on supply chains, featuring interviews with our clients, as well as analysis by our experts. To find all our podcasts, just search Control Risks wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to stay updated with the newest editions. You can follow all our analysis 
and find out how we're helping business build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you, and goodbye for now.